Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, your word is truth, and you only speak what is true. Uh, so we can rely on what's here uh, because of your great knowledge, because of your great love, because of your great care for us. Uh, thank you for your word. We love you. pray that your spirit would take what is yours and apply it to each one of us this evening as you know we need to hear it. I'm going to pray for that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, Song of Solomon. Uh, first, I have to put a big disclaimer on this. It's a book of marital love. Um, Usually I stand up here at least pretending to be somewhat of an expert on what I'm talking about. That was a joke. Did you not hear it? Pretending, yeah. That was a bad joke then. Tonight, no such joke. Uh, I am on the same journey if you're married. Uh, I am, I don't have this thing nailed. Uh, Lori and I still experience ups and downs, mostly because of me, let's be fair. Uh, And so all of these things in the Song of Solomon are what I would call aspirational, not necessarily actual, at any one time in anybody's life. So as long as you grant me that, that I'm on the journey with you, uh, tonight we'll just try, try again. We'll learn what uh, the Lord wants us to learn, and then we can take that and apply it in our own situations as we have need. So tonight, Song of Solomon is about marital love. The basics, who wrote it? Solomon said, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. Uh, Last time we learned that he wrote about a thousand, a little over a thousand of these things. This one, evidently, he felt was the pinnacle. This is his song of songs. This is the best one he felt like he wrote. And that's the one included in our Bible. When did he write it? Sometime between 971 and 931. He took over from David in about 970, so he's probably, um, if if it's 971, he's 21. If it's 931, he's a little bit older, early 60s. Where? He probably wrote this in Jerusalem. Why? Uh, The purpose of the book is to extol human love and marriage. Though at first this seems strange, on reflection, it's not surprising for God to have included in the biblical canon a book endorsing the beauty and purity of marital love. comes from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. By the way, every once in a while people say, what commentaries should I buy? I'm looking to buy a couple of commentaries. Uh, I just tell you right now, you cannot go wrong if you buy the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Is it an Old Testament, New Testament still, or is it now even further divided? 
You can get it in a used bookstore for the two volumes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, if you're looking for a set of commentaries to get, I highly recommend Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, I will tell you, with Song of Solomon, uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary did a, has done a really good treatment of this book, and so has our brother and friend Tommy Nelson, formerly at Denton Bible. He actually has written a whole book on Song of Solomon, that, and I think he nailed it. So if you were to take Bible Knowledge Commentary and Tommy Nelson and Bill's stuff tonight and lay them side by side, you'll see a lot of cross-pollination between the three. Uh, I think Tommy did a great, great job with it. So just some general considerations. The Song of Solomon is poetic drama. Um, it's not even Western poetry. It's Eastern poetry. So it gets, it's a little harder to understand what all is going on in this. But we're able to get it worked through. It's filled with metaphors and uses allusions rather than straightforward descriptions. That's kind of a poetic angle on this. In the past 2,000 years, a lot of people have tried to understand this a lot of different ways. Uh, first is some people call this the historical view, which is the love the Lord has for Israel. And so the, uh, the king in, in the drama is the Lord, and the beloved is Israel. And they got married at Mount Sinai, and um, it's a story of their relationship. Um, if, if you think that's the best understanding of this book, great. Lots of people have thought that's what this is about. Another one, by the time the New Testament came along, um, people sort of just changed the players and said, well, it's the love that Christ has for his church. Certainly the king, uh, the Lord Jesus, has married his bride, the church, and so this is, again, um, they're understanding it in terms of a relationship between Christ and his love for the church, his bride. Again, a lot of good people take it that way. I just think the most straightforward understanding of this book is the one I'm going to go through tonight, and that's, it's first and foremost, a divine story of a maturing married love. That's what it is. Marriage is God's invention. Why wouldn't he want to talk about it somewhere in his book? And I think he's chosen to do that. Here's the bottom line for tonight. It takes hard work to love your spouse well. Some of you said, give me the silver bullet. I want the magic key. There isn't one. Uh, it takes hard work to love your spouse well. And so let's take a look at that tonight. We'll, I'll kind of hit on some verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to read. You have to read it two or three times kind of to get the players. But most of your modern translations have good headings. You know, it'll say the king or 
the beloved or something and kind of alert you to who the speaker is for the one or two verses or longer. So it takes hard work to love your spouse well. The book opens, uh, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. Uh, And it seems that we open with the young woman speaking, and she says, Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Wow! It's like we're dumped into this R-rated movie. Remember, poetic drama. What's beginning to come out now are metaphors and allusions that are going to tell us about what's going on, but there's very vivid language that's used. So, what do we learn at first? Well, chapter 1, verse 3, how fragrant your cologne. Often uh, a name, particularly a man's name, is uh, his reputation. And so, uh, Solomon's reputation smells good. So, it smells like cologne. I'm not sure she's really talking about he is wearing whatever, polo or something. His name has a fragrance like cologne that's pleasing to her nose. (laughs) Verse 5, I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents, Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyard so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Okay. What? (laughs) She is a person who works in the fields, particularly in the vineyards. They may have even met in a vineyard, and that's where... um, He first saw her and she first saw him. But she's um, suntanned because she's been working outside. She doesn't work inside. She works outside. Uh, Let's see. And then the young man, so this would be Solomon, um, he he tells her, uh, if you don't know, when she says, um, "Where where are you going? He says, if you don't know, follow the trail of my flock. Um, And then he says, you're exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. (laughs) Allusions, metaphors. (laughs) But I think you understand what's, what's being said here. How lovely are your cheeks. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck, enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. So their first exchange when we're thrown into this thing is they are attracted to one another physically, but they're also attracted to each other's character. The king, 
is pure and holy. He's a godly man. Uh, this is why his, the, the cologne is probably a purified, keyword, purified oil. So the purified oil has a marvelous fragrance. But he's, his name is like purified oil. So this is a godly man. The young woman is industrious. She's been obedient to her brothers, which at that time in that culture, that's how it went. Uh, she's been a servant, and we pick up on that again in chapter 8. She's been morally upright and committed to purity. In, and she says, talks about that in verse 7, that she doesn't want to appear as the wrong kind of woman. So we find out something about the king. We find out something about the young woman. But the king, Solomon, has basically started to court what's going to eventually become his bride. So we move on. Uh, they begin eating together. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, the king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. Uh, she goes on, um, let's see, down to verse 16. Where are they? So just, again, I'm reinforcing this idea that there's a lot of metaphors and illusions. Where are they? They're outside. They're lying in the grass, verse 16. But she's speaking of this thing as he's laying on the couch and all these kinds of, well, he's laying on the grass under some trees. That's, that's where they are. So they are in the light, out in the open, and they date for a bit here. She finds the king in the rest of chapter 1 to be gentle and complimentary, to be tender and sweet. Even his memory is precious to her heart. He is pursuing her exclusively. He's protecting and nourishing her soul and honoring and respecting her. So it, it opens, but let, let that first ah scene just tamp it down just a little bit. They're doing everything above board and right. So they're, the king is courting her. They're out. Uh, they're having a picnic lunch, basically. He finds that the young woman increasingly respects him. Uh, and she, or he, says that in chapter 2, verse 3. So their passions grow. The young woman, in, by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 5, she says, strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Um, she, is, she has passion for Solomon and has a longing for physical intimacy. You say, how do you get that from raisin cakes? <laughs> remember when David, remember when David returned from battle. Remember, and he went into Michael. Remember this? Remember, I told you, you can't forget anything. 
He, and what does he give all of Israel? He gives them some stuff, including some raisin cakes. <laughs> mm. She's hungry for raisin cakes. So if you understand the culture, you're going, oh, raisin cakes. <laughs> Ooh. She has uh, some feelings that are really beginning to grow. The king responds with patience and self-control. He knows that there is a time and a place for love, but not now. And it must await a future season for intimacy. So again, they're doing everything right and correct and above board. But this, the, the words are letting us know what's going on inside them, if that makes sense. So he continues to court her, and by the time we're partway into chapter 2, he says, um, My lover said to me, Rise up, my darling, come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past, and the rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come. And the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit, and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. What's happening? It's springtime. So if you're reading this, you're going, ooh, springtime. Got it. Something, a change has happened in the season, and probably a change is coming in their relationship. And in fact, it is. So we're, we're told in this language that something is changing. It's now a season. A new season is dawning on their relationship, and their mutual passions are growing. Yet, the young woman has feelings of insecurity. Uh, he says, uh, my dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop on the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. So she's hiding from him, kind of, I don't know if it's like hide-and-go-seek, but she's kind of hiding from him, perhaps from her own feelings of insecurity and or she doesn't want to be led on. I mean, we're talking about the king here. So the king reassures her of his commitment. Also, I mean, that's what 14 is. He's reassuring her um, that you're the one for me. Probably this was written earlier on in Solomon's life because we know that he may have had a little bit of problem with this uh, later on in his life. And so this is probably early, early in his life. So he reassures her of his commitment Together, their trust in each other is growing and deepening. And then there's this strange little thing. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Well, the foxes in those days would get into the vineyards and the other crops, and they would eat it all or destroy it. So you wanted to catch the little foxes before they went into the different places, um, or it would, it would ruin the crops, 
And so the illusion and the metaphor is they're trying to keep the little destructive sins that could ruin their relationship out of, out of the equation here. They realize there are little things that could be um, entering into the relationship and they're making sure they're going to catch the little foxes and not let them run wild in the vineyard because it could destroy what is growing between them. And so the young woman grows in security and respect for Solomon. And then in chapter 3, this is the first of two, two dreams. And if you don't get their dreams, you go, what in the world is happening? Why are watchmen beating her up? Right, if you read it in the, the second dream. These are dreams. She says, one night as I lay in bed... And then she begins talking about what dreams she had. And the watchmen seem to be there in the first dream. They help her. And in the second dream, uh, they chasten her. And so these dreams are not happening in, in real time. They're her dream of what's happening. But she continues to grow in security and respect for Solomon. She does have a recurring dream of longing for him However, and in the dream, she takes him to see her mother. Then I brought him to my mother's house, into my mother's bed where I had been conceived. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's quite an introduction. But in her dream, this is what she's doing. She's introducing Solomon to her mother. So the relationship has gotten to a point where we're beginning to meet um, um, mom. All right. So the king is courting his bride. He's still courting her. And yet the king, verse 5, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. You could just write, wait. He's telling her, wait, wait. So he's exhorting her to wait for the right time for intimacy. Uh, maybe she shared this dream with him. Not quite sure. Probably. Uh, that time, the, the right time, will coincide with the soon coming wedding day. And so now we move from courting. The change in season is bringing about a marriage. And so, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6, we shift from courtship, we're going to shift to marriage because the season has changed. What is it? It's spring, it's the season for love, and what happens? He's going to get married to her. And so, the shift occurs about chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it's Solomon's carriage, surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. And so he is well guarded. His, his carriage is um, fantastically built. Uh, and we find that out in 9 and 10. And 
Verse 11, come out and see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. And so we're going to have a wedding here. Finally, the wedding day comes in magnificent splendor, and the bride expresses the fullness of her feelings. Uh, chapter 4, uh, that 4, 1 through 5, 1 is the honeymoon. And it's about all we're going to say about that one. What's been off limits until now becomes the source of great delight for both of them. And that's basically chapter 4. They talk back and forth about um, how happy they are. And so, beginning with chapter 5, verse 2, they live happily ever after. Oh, no, we have some more chapters. They don't live happily ever after. Uh, soon, soon enough, the honeymoon is over and life happens. And so, they've courted, they've gotten married, and now some time has elapsed. Could be a day, could be a week, could be a year. I don't know. We're not told. But some time has passed because he's no longer calling her my bride. He has wonderful other pet names for her, but he's not calling her my bride anymore. So enough time has elapsed that how he addresses her lovingly has changed. Okay, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. I slept... But my heart was awake. Okay, so she's having another dream. Uh, he, I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. I guess that's attractive. I, I'm not sure. But I responded... I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open. Remember, this is all in a dream. I jumped up. Uh, my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. <laughs> the what? <laughs> She's got the door locked from the inside. You get what's going on here? He's, honey, honey, he can't get in the door because she's got it bolted shut. And what is she saying? I've already got my pajamas on. I don't, don't want to get my feet dirty. Honey, he can't get in. All right. So in her dream, she opens the door, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. Now, if you think that all played out physically, the watchmen are probably in big, big trouble, <laughs> right? Solomon's going to have a little convo with them. <laughs> They're going to be gone. 
So this is what's happening in her dream. She's dreaming all of this. The first dream she has with the watchman, they helped her. This time the watchman chasing her. We're having allusions to this is God's work in her life. The first dream, God is helping her find her intended. In the second dream, God is encouraging her to change her mind. And this is the the language that gets used, the, the watchmen show up again and um, represent God's mm, speaking to her mind and spirit. So they have to learn to resolve conflict. Is that, is that true in any marriage? It's not weird that that would be in this book, book on married love and have to resolve conflict. Is that weird? No, it's not weird. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it's not weird for you. It's weird for me. It seems Solomon's been working late again and comes to her bedroom unanticipated. She's indifferent. Kind of gives him the silent treatment. He doesn't force the issue, and she finds herself responding to his kindness. But he leaves back into the night. She reconsiders, not because of his punishment, I mean, he can't even get in the room, but under another, capital A, another's chastening hands. So the Lord is reminding her, this is not how things need to be playing out. So they've got to begin to work through conflict. And here's, here's how they're describing this conflict and how it's being played out in their lives. So they resolve the conflict. Her heart has changed, and she again wants to be with him. She reminds herself of who he is. She knows where he is, and that brings a renewed sense of security. And so she comes to him apologetic. He's forgiving and tender with her, not harsh. And he reminds her that she's unique and holds a special place in his sight. So they... Um, well, here, they're going to basically kiss and make up. So they, uh, his love, embrace, and forgiveness restore her and make her grow, and they resolve the conflict by making up, which is fun. And that's all I'll say about that one in chapter 6. So they've courted. They've gotten married. They're learning how to resolve conflict. And now, what's one more thing they have to learn? They have to learn how to kindle romance. We've, there's enough time that's elapsed that perhaps some of that original passion and fire isn't quite to the level it was before. Maybe it's subsided a little bit or, or even a lot. And so they have to learn to kindle romance. And so beginning in chapter 7, they have to learn how to do that. Uh, and so uh, they begin to basically romance each other. Um, and he, in chapter 7, begins to speak um, about her. He praises and affirms his wife with intimate words, 
spoken with maturity and tenderness. Uh, in 1 through 4, he talks about her character. In 5 and 6, he talks about her beauty. And then in 7, 8, and 9, he talks about her desirability to him. He truly longs for her. So part of the romancing is, is that. So the king praises and affirms his wife, and then she, in turn, is responsive to his words and is determined to lure him to herself. She is creative in appealing to him and spontaneous and passionate about it. And so we learn at the end of these things that romance must be awakened and nurtured. And all of this then happens beginning in a little way into chapter 8, that they're committed for life. And so in this whole book, we have a courtship, we have a marriage, they have to learn how to deal with conflict, they have to learn how to kindle romance, and it's all in the context of we are committed together for life. And so beginning partway through chapter 7, oh, sorry, chapter 8, uh, let's see. He, the, the young woman begins talking about earlier on, um, and then we have this little chat or this little interjection from the young woman's brothers, um, and they were wondering how she would handle herself growing up, and she handled herself well, and so they didn't have to do anything that they didn't, they didn't need to do it because she was great, um, but the brothers were ready to take care of her, and keep her safe if they needed to do that. And so we find out that the, the couple's commitment in chapter 8, verse 5, their love is providential. In 6, it's permanent. In 7, it's precious. And then 8 through 14 is basically the truth of biblical marital love. Uh, the principle, it's to be protected until the time is right. So if you were using this book to instruct daughters and sons, one of the lessons that you would have wanted to communicate to them was, it's to be protected, this, this uh, union is to be protected until the time is right. That's the principle. So there's some other truths about this. The timing. Everyone says, okay, that's the principle. I get it. What's the timing? Evidence by maturity. Both had been obedient to God and family, and both had been patient. So there is some evidence of maturity in these two individuals before they came together. The timing Evidenced by morality, they both maintained their purity. The timing, evidenced by the readiness to enter into a mutual, lifelong commitment to serve one another. So there's a principle. Wait. Wait until it's right. How do I know it's right? There's got to be some maturity, evidenced by patience. There needs to be morality. 
and there needs to be the readiness to enter into a mutual lifelong commitment because that's the context, ideal context for Song of Solomon. That is the Song of Solomon. It's about a growing, maturing marital love. All right. It takes hard work to love your spouse well. Uh, if, you, if you read through this once or twice, and now maybe with this little bit of a skeleton, you can kind of go back and hang some things on it. Um, some good information in here. Uh, it does take hard work to love well. And so I'm going to begin um, with the unmarried who might be watching or listening. Uh, put character ahead of looks. Put character ahead of looks. I have especially young men who, you know, but she's, did you see her? I'm like, that's great. What's she like? <laughs> huh? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that's more important. So you've got to find that out. Oh, okay. So put character ahead of looks. Um, I've suggested, particularly to young men, put together a spouse values checklist. Values. Values checklist. Make absolutely sure they're running in the same direction and at your spiritual pace. If someone's ahead of you or behind you, maybe that's a temporary thing, and patience will close that gap. But get the gap as close to closed as you can before you really get deeply invested in one another. Be mature, be obedient to God, and be patient. Be moral, protect your purity and theirs. Uh, men, younger men in this room and maybe watching, um, in our culture today, you have put the burden of how fast the relationship goes physically on the woman. It is wrong. Stop it. You are the one with the gas pedal and the brake pedal. And you'd better be standing on that brake pedal. Do not put that on her. Not right. If you want a Christian marriage. And finally, wait until there's a mutual commitment to a lifetime of serving one another. You both deserve it. Both. You both deserve it to be committed to a lifetime of serving one another. I just saw a funny, funny little YouTube. This guy, um, he, he plays little funny comedy clips, and he, then he films his wife listening to the funny little clip. And they're only about a minute long. And this one guy says, um, the, the little comedy clip is the fellow says, well... Um, I've found myself uh, single again, and I don't know what to say when I go to bars. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the wife's expressions are really funny. <laughs> She's like, 
what? He goes, so I thought, you know, if I ever go in there, what I'll say is, I vacuumed the house. And and she went, I mean, her eyebrows go, (laughs) they go up. And he said, not only that, but I load and unload the dishwasher. (laughs) And she starts doing this. She's like, oh, oh, oh. And he says, the trash is mine. And she, she starts fanning herself right now. And you, can he, you can hear her barely, but you can see her mouths. Uh, she's mouthing, I'm blushing. <laughs> and the guy drops the camera and says, I'm getting the vacuum. <laughs> anyway, so funny. Oh, hysterical. I guess you got to see it. But, oh, man, I just laughed and laughed. I thought that was really funny. Men? We have to serve our wives. If it's, if it's trash, it's yours. If it's a bug, it's yours. Spider, snake, mouse, varmints, all that stuff, that's yours. It's yours. So to the unmarried, I would recommend these things. To the married, first, resolve conflict biblically. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as is possible with you, live at peace with all men or women. And so, as far as it goes with you, try to live at peace, even in the midst of conflict. Try, try. I do not score 100 in this. I don't. I wish I did. Maybe some of you struggle with the same thing. Peace. Peace is good. Try to live at peace. Second, kindle your romance when and where possible. There are certain um, chapters of life. Children are different ages. Rugged. So, Kindle your romance when and where possible. Men. By the way, I'm working on these two. So remember this is the part. Bill's working on these two. Offer genuine words of praise and affirmation to your wife, said with maturity and tenderness. Men, I don't know why we got stuck in seventh grade, but sometimes we get stuck in seventh grade. And when we talk to our wives, we sound more like a seventh grader than we sound like a grown man. And so I just remind you, as I remind myself, offer genuine words of praise and affirmation to my wife, said with maturity and tenderness. We can do it. We can do it. The Spirit of God will need to help us, but we can do it. Study your wife. Do you know what she likes? Do you know what her favorite something is? Now, some of us don't know and can't guess, and so then you might have to be a little more creative on how you find out the answer. Never mind. 
So what I'm thinking is, so if I was going to buy Laurie a piece of jewelry, let's say, um, I could try 100 times, and I'm going to get it wrong 99 times. I just don't get what she finds attractive from time to time. It's not wrong. It's just what she likes. And I, I go, is it that one? No, why would you think it's that? Oh, I don't know. I can't guess. And so then I'll, I'll probably break down and just say, well, here's how much I was thinking of spending. Why, why don't you find what you like, and then you can pick it out. That's my creative way of trying to win. Because uh, sometimes you just can't, you can't guess right or know right. Okay. Speak to her about her character her beauty, and her desirability to you. Speak about those things. Men, there will be times when your wife will say or do something that puts your heart into a slow, angry boil. She will not meet a commitment, an expectation, a preference or a desire of yours. She will disappoint you and let you down. Let grace abound. Let grace abound. Women, take the initiative from time to time to draw your husband to yourself. Be creative, be spontaneous, and passionate from time to time. Women, there will be times when your husband will say or do something that puts your heart into a slow, angry boil. (laughs) He will not meet a commitment, an expectation, a preference, or a desire of yours. He will disappoint you and let you down. Let grace abound. Both sides. Let grace abound. Maybe you haven't noticed this. We're all broken and imperfect. What has to abound? Grace. Grace has to abound. I won't go long without disappointing or something. Um, If Laurie's asked me to do something, I can forget that faster than anything. And she's very kind and patient, and then she'll remind me again, oh yeah, I got to go do that, and then I don't do it. She has to let grace abound. I'm just broken. Let's show grace to one another. For next week... That says read Proverbs. That's not a mistake. 31 chapters. We'll do 31 chapters next week of Proverbs. Don't let it go until the end. (laughs) Maybe even start tonight. (laughs) 
It's a marvelous, marvelous book. Some of you are on a, you know, day, uh, the first day of the month you read Proverbs 1, second day of the month you read Proverbs 2, wonderful. If you have a plan, great. If you've never read through the book of Proverbs, you need to read through it. We're going to talk about it at a 36,000-foot view, but it'll do you well to read Proverbs. I know you'll enjoy it. Let me pray for us, and we will be dismissed for tonight. Father, thank you for your word. It's not really a surprise to us. Marriage is your invention, and so you include a book in the Holy Library that talks about it, that talks about how to court, that talks about marriage, that talks about conflict, that talks about kindling romance. It's not a surprise. You, you love us and you care for us so, so very well. We love you and we thank you. Uh, we place ourselves in whatever situation in life we find ourselves in, uh, saying we love you and we trust you, and whatever way you give us to walk, that's the way we'll walk. So thank you for loving us and caring for us so well and so deeply. May grace abound in every relationship we have, and that all finds its source in the grace that you have shown us uh, at the cross through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him and for the grace you show us every single day. May we show that to our spouses, to our families, to our friends, to our co-workers, to those who serve us in restaurants, everywhere. May we be known as people of grace because you have been gracious to us. We love you and we thank you. We pray for all this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.